Hello, and welcome to It Would Behoove You, the only podcast dedicated specifically to how to get the most out of your military career. I'm joined today by Commander Sienna. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. I apologize. My voice is probably a little rough. I've been feeling the, the seasonal changes lately. No worries. I'm glad to be here. Commander Sienna is the strike group oceanography team commander for, uh, for San Diego. And can you just give us a quick rundown on, on what that team does? Yeah, absolutely. So we deploy certified teams who apply meteorology and oceanography to deliver warfighting advantage, increase decision superiority to afloat forces, specifically our carriers and mm-hmm. large deck amphibious ships. Okay. They provide full, full spectrum METOC. A METOC is an acronym for meteorology oceanography. Mm-hmm. or as a part of mobile environmental teams as well. So personnel of ours can deploy on some destroyers or other naval assets as required, depending on where a certain mission set might require additional METOC support. Definitely something I could see the Navy needing, but tell me, you know, give us a, a brief story of your background. How did you choose the Navy and how did you choose this particular section, this, this sort of job path? Yeah, absolutely. It definitely started when I was younger. So kind of start from the beginning. My grandfather also served in the Navy during World War II. He was assigned to the light cruiser USS Pasadena, and he fought in the Western Pacific from 1944 to 1945. My dad, he enlisted in the Navy in 1969. He was a machinist mate on board the USS St. Louis. That was an amphibious cargo ship. Okay. He, he deployed to Vietnam and he served for a total of three years before moving back home to, to Norwalk. So I grew up in Norwalk, Connecticut, which is, it's essentially a suburb community of uh, New York City, a commuter community, since it's only about 50 to 60 minute train ride into Grand Central Station. You know, as a kid, grew up all the, big fan of all the New York sports, Yankees, Rangers, Giants, Knicks. I played baseball, basketball, but, you know, found my calling in sports as a runner in high school. And then I eventually went to college at Penn State. But to, you know, kind of backtrack a little bit in terms of, though it's not an extensive military history in my family, the service my grandfather and father uh, gave to the country definitely had an influence on me on a young age. And my parents definitely, you know, kind of provided that support structure that guided me into looking to join the Navy as an officer specifically, either through the Naval Academy or the Naval ROTC program. Did you think about any other branches? Not really. I think maybe for a hot minute, I might've considered the Marine Corps once I had gotten to Penn State and in the NROTC program there. But no, it's always has been the, the Navy for me. Yeah, I got that. You, you go to school, you decide to join the Navy, you went to Penn State, and it sounds like your family was really helping you on guiding you in a direction. But how did you end up getting your, your first position, your first post? Yeah, absolutely. So... I definitely developed a passion for weather forecasting early on in middle school, had to do the, the required school science fair project and oh, yeah. really just, I picked weather and I liked hey. it and just kind of always knew I wanted to be involved in weather. I applied to both the Naval Academy and Naval ROTC programs when I was in high school. My top choice was to attend Penn State because of their meteorology program. I applied to Penn State and several other schools for NROTC 
because because they had meteorology or an atmospheric science program. So when you did the Venn diagram of NROTC schools and schools that offer that, it kind of narrowed down to sure. just a few to a handful. So I received my NROTC scholarship offer during the month of December, I believe it was, of my senior year in high school. And I hadn't heard back from the Naval Academy yet. So I accepted the offer and the rest was history from there. Okay. So, so then when it came time to the service selection, for anyone that goes to the Naval Academy or uh, NROTC, you have to pick uh, one of the warfare areas. And I decided that I want to go surface warfare. Mm-hmm. But I had learned, I think it was a year prior from a classmate of mine, that there was an option where I could serve as a surface warfare officer and then basically have a guaranteed transfer into the Navy's MeTOC community. To me, this was the best of both worlds because I got the opportunity to be an officer of the line, unrestricted line officer, and learn mm-hmm. more about the Navy at large before transferring into the MeTOC subspecialty. So I applied for that. They called it the SWO Ocean option, and I was selected for it. <laughs> so I did the service selection, and then you get to pick what ship you want to go to. So the the ship I chose for my first tour, I picked oh. the USS John Paul Jones. Uh, it was DDG-53. Uh, mm-hmm. I was homeported out of San Diego, ironically, at the time. <laughs> and And I picked the John Paul Jones basically from the experiences of my midshipman training cruises on my... Mm-hmm. First class cruise, I got the opportunity to be on a destroyer. Mm-hmm. And then on my second class cruise, I got the opportunity to visit San Diego. So this met both of the, the criteria that I had. Yeah. For so those of dur- us that haven't really spent any time around or with the Navy, can you explain what those cruises are or those like familiarization rotations? Yeah, absolutely. I know the Naval Academy, it's a little bit different. So I'll just speak to my experience with ROTC. Sure. After your... Freshman year, you do what's known as Courtroom Mid on the East Coast or West Coast, depending on where your school is located. So mm-hmm. being a East Coast school, I went down to Norfolk for a month and you get a one week exposure to uh, surface warfare, a week of mm-hmm. exposure to submarine warfare, a week of exposure to aviation and a week of exposure to the Marines. So mm-hmm. got to fly in training aircraft for aviation week. I got to go on the USS Pennsylvania for hmm. submarine week. I'm trying to remember the ship I went on for my surface warfare week. It was the USS Stump. It was uh, it was a Spruance class destroyer, which we don't even have any more of those. So that t- lets you know how old that ship was. <laughs> and then they take you down to Lejeune for a week to see what it's like being Marine. So Hmm. That was that was that cruise. And then for my second class cruise, I was on the USS Arwa, another ship that we don't have anymore. So I mm-hmm. guess I'm starting to show my age. And did a transit from uh, San Diego to Hawaii for an exercise that was participating in uh, called the Rim Pack, the Rim of the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And then for my first class cruise, I was on the USS John McCain and I met it out in Guam. It was home ported in Yokosuka, Japan. And mm-hmm. got some underway time on on that ship. That's awesome. As someone who spent their time not only just in the army but in the National Guards, your your training and everything else that you do for for a lot of guardsmen is is very close to your home. Um, that is kind of the selling point, but it also kind of takes away that go see the world aspect of the Navy specifically. Yeah, it's. Definitely beneficial for the Navy having ships that have to be on the coast. So we definitely have some good uh, duty stations of where we can be uh, located. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay, you've got this really sweet 
opportunity that gives you the best, the best of both worlds, you know, what you want and what you could sort of benefit from and grow from. How do things move on from there? Yeah, absolutely. So on John Paul Jones, I did a Western Pacific Westpac deployment and did exercises with the Australian, Singaporean, South Korean, Japanese navies, had lots of great port visits in those respective countries as well. And during that time, I received my qualification as a surface warfare officer. I contacted my detailer about executing that option I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. and he worked his detailer magic and I was officially redesignated at the end of that deployment. I did my first tour in our community at the Naval Maritime Forecast Center. And at that command, it's a command that provides VTOC products to ships out at sea in the second fleet, fourth fleet, sixth fleet areas of responsibility in order to provide them safety of navigation and to provide, to enable the decision makers for operational commanders to utilize these assets and get them to where they need be for different operations in those respective AORs. It was a 24 seven watch floor and I was in charge of one of the four sections for it. Mm -hmm. And I also eventually fleeted up to the assistant operations officer before I transferred out of there. Wow. That sounds really interesting and definitely essential to, to the work that you guys are doing. Um, yes. And they do a lot of coordination, specifically that command. It's now part of what's now the Fleet Weather Center in Norfolk. Mm -hmm. And they do a lot of close coordination with the National Hurricane Center for not only safety of our ships, but the naval installations. So when systems like Hurricane Ian approach the continental United States, they are in very close coordination with the National Hurricane Center to make sure the installation commands and our ships that they need to sortie out to see uh, do so in a safe manner and get them to areas where they won't be affected by the, uh, the storm systems. Hmm. That's very cool. So, you know, as you've, as you've built your, your career in this sort of a small world, a lot of the times you can feel like, you know, every move might potentially affect your career. How, how have you dealt with that added layer of difficulty in, in planning and executing a career? So I don't think I would classify maybe as a difficulty. Our community, because we're pretty small there, especially in our officer corps, we're only about a little over 300. There's very kind of like prescribed path and timelines for you to hit certain wickets in your career. Okay. So, you know, like for me, after I did this tour at the Maritime Forecast Center, I went to... Uh, a second Divo tour in our community at the Naval Ice Center uh, in Suitland, Maryland, and I served as mm -hmm. their operations officer there. So for our timelines, depending on how you assess into our community, mm -hmm. you may get the opportunity to do one or two tours as a junior officer after, say, like for me, uh, doing the SWO tour, and then mm -hmm. every officer in our community goes through the Naval Postgraduate Schools to get their master's in meteorology and physical oceanography. And that's a two and a half year commitment to go there. And then you owe time on the back end after that to do what's considered our first milestone position with our community. Okay. Generally, you're a, a junior 04 at this point, and you go serve as the METOC officer assigned to one of our aircraft carriers, our large deck amphibious ships. Uh, or you're the METOC officer that's supporting the carrier strike group commander. Okay. So for me, in my case, I ended up being the METOC officer on board the USS Ronald Reagan, which was stationed in San Diego at the time. That's uh, a big deal, so, right? That's a pretty cool ship. 
Yeah. And my tour there was kind of a unique one because I reported in December of 2013, right after graduation. And mm -hmm. around that time, that was the time of sequestration by Congress. So what would have been a typical seven month deployment when I arrived because of funding cuts and everything involved with that ended up just being our carrier participating in the RIMPAC exercise I mentioned earlier with my okay. uh, midshipman crews. Mm. And then the other kind of unique part of that tour was Navy was conducting its first ever three carrier home port shift. Mm -hmm. All of our aircraft carriers after 25 years have to go through a big midlife overhaul to do upkeep, not only on the reactors, but on the ship itself. So the Ronald Reagan crew, a majority of us swapped over to the George Washington in Japan, Kuzka, Japan. Mm -hmm. We took the George Washington through the Straits of Magellan in South of South America over to Norfolk and then moved over to Newport News to do its midlife overhaul. The mm -hmm. crew from the George Washington, they moved up to the Ronald Reagan. They took it back over to Japan. And the crew of the Theodore Roosevelt did a around the world deployment. So I volunteered to plan that two week import transfer period between the Ronald Reagan and George Washington, and then organize the, the airlift for the crews from the Theodore Roosevelt back to Norfolk and for our personnel back to, to San Diego. So yeah, it was definitely a, a different type of tour, but it was definitely very rewarding kind of being part of something that the Navy hadn't done before. And then. You know, again, because our community is so small, we generally do a staff tour either at our operational command, Commander Naval Meteorology Oceanography Command in Stennis, Mississippi, or with the oceanographer of the Navy staff in the Pentagon. So I went to Pentagon staff and mm -hmm. was the requirements officer for our hydrographic survey ship portfolio and our unmanned underwater vehicle portfolio. Uh, can you tell us anything about that? Those both sound like very interesting things to be, to be working with. Yeah. So for Naval Oceanography, we actually lead the Navy in the deployment and operation of unmanned underwater, underwater and surface vehicles. Mm -hmm. So our survey ships, they go out and map at the bottom of the ocean for hydrographic surveys. And then our Unmanned underwater vehicles, depending on the type of system, can also do similar mapping as well. Or we have what's known as an ocean glider, and they can measure different oceanographic parameters, such as temperature, salinity, that we utilize in our ocean modeling. So, yeah, the tour was really cool to kind of learn how things worked at the, the 30,000 foot level. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the planning, programming, budgeting, the execution of that budget, and how all those decisions that happen of supporting the oceanographer, the Navy staff is part of the, the broader CNO staff and to kind of see how those things made at the echelon one level have an impact that commands like my current one down at the echelon, echelon five level. Okay. Uh, I've got a couple of questions yeah, yeah, that really. I just, I got to admit are more related to my curiosity than, you know, directly to the, the, the career aspect. So I, I understand that there's rivers in the ocean there's all sorts of things that are constantly changing and like just the like seeing a waterfall in the ocean just blew my mind is that something that is actively tracked for any need or is that just something about a nature show and more just uh something that a civilian would think was interesting than that is actually tactically necessary or useful so i guess what i would say is with 
naval meteorology and oceanography, we're, we're trying to have the greatest understanding possible of the environment because being able to understand that environment is what allows the operational planners to know how it's going to affect military systems. How's it going to mm -hmm. affect our weapon systems? How's it going to affect the weapon systems of our adversaries? So the atmosphere and ocean, both are extremely complex and we have some of the smartest, not only military, but a large civilian workforce as well that are constantly looking to see how we can better exploit that environment. That's really cool. That's one of those things that most people don't think about. That the, the Navy, I'd say in the last decade has seen a greater need, not only for our community, but several other communities within the, mm -hmm. in the Navy and established what's now known as the information warfare community. Mm -hmm. So it's made up of professionals that are not only in talk, but also in intelligence and cryptology and information technology, because we see information as part of the, the construct of war and warfare and being able to enable operational commanders to execute their missions in a more effective manner by having a better understanding of the information environment to be able to execute some of those other warfare areas like strike warfare and anti-submarine yeah. warfare, electromagnetic warfare, naval special warfare, et cetera. Well, and that's great that you have everyone working together so that there is a more free flow of information. Yeah. And we've even done a lot more in the last couple of years of uh, cross-pollinating and cross-detailing. So mm -hmm. like I had the opportunity, I was one of the, the first officers as part of the information warfare community to cross-detail at the 04 leadership level. So again, kind of, you know, going back to that prescribed path that we right. have. So if you screen for 04 leadership, you're going to go be an XO at a command somewhere. And I had the opportunity to be the executive officer at the Naval Computer and Telecommunication Station in Sicily. So really great opportunity to kind of learn in more depth about another pillar of the information warfare community. Mm -hmm. And it's something that definitely made me a better information warfare officer overall to build upon, you know, my, you know, kind of my expertise more as a, as a METOC officer. I bet. No. And it's one of the things I found the most interesting as I looked over the things that you've been able to do over the course of your career is that I, I think some of it's really, really interesting, but also just as you're building on a career, right, you want to see that one thing is building to another, both in, you know, giving you experience that you can apply to the next role. But then also, you know, building towards something higher. And I've definitely seen that with your career. In a small world like this, what's some advice that you could give to someone in replicating or having a similar positive outcome? It's prescribed, but you've gotten the cool stuff each time. <laughs> yeah, it's it's prescribed. And kind of like you said earlier, you definitely build upon each thing, you know. So, you know, in my role of commanding officer, I'm definitely a better officer for having done everything that was part of this path up to this point. And, you know, just prior to, to coming into my job in command here at the Strike Group Oceanography team, I had the great opportunity as part of my 05 milestone job to be assigned to the joint staff, uh, supporting the J-35 and the deputy director for regional operations. And specifically there, I did absolutely nothing related to information <laughs> warfare or METOC. 
And I was one of the uh, two writers for the Secretary of Defense uh, Orders book or SDOB. Mm-hmm. And the SDOB, the most succinct way I can describe what an SDOB was, was presenting the SECDEF a decision that was how to manage risk in the short term for a specific mission or operation mm-hmm. against the risk to longer term readiness. And, you know, what the secretary was being presented was maybe a change in the global force a- allocation and execute order, uh, alert mobilization orders for reserve and lots of other different things. So during my time there, we dealt with the, the challenges of surging DOD medical personnel in support of the COVID-19 response, the Mm -hmm. NEO out of Afghanistan, the buildup of forces in Eastern Europe in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So, you know, the 30,000 foot view working on the uh, uh, OPNAV staff, you know, a couple of years prior, I was getting the view from the the 60 foot level, being able to uh, make recommendations that were seen and reviewed and approved at the highest levels of the DOD, uh, including mm-hmm. the president, was extremely rewarding. So, yeah, with our with our small community and this pipeline that we have, you know, I think that the resources I've used has been the has been the community, honestly, because yeah, I mentioned earlier, you know, we are small. We only have about twenty five hundred personnel, both military and civilians. Mm-hmm. So, kind of learning from them and their experiences, their careers, that's kind of been the best education that I've gotten because we are such a, a niche field. You know, being able to to learn from those who have come before me has really been the the best education that I personally had during my tenure. Um, so, one of the things that I, I definitely like to hit on with someone with as thing and, and diverse as a background as yours going to all different sides of that that information warfare space is you know what what are some of the highest points you, you talked a little bit about some of the coolest things you've got to do but what are some of the struggles that you may have fought through um, and some lessons that you've learned from from overcoming those obstacles yeah absolutely so I, I have to say the best day in my career and the highlight was definitely the day I took command. For me, it was a reflection, not, not really of, of me, but everyone who molded, supported, mentored me in my career. There were, there's so many people that had contributed so much to the Navy in my development that I felt it was more of a reflection to them. And I believe a lot about everyone being able to, to leave a legacy you know, I, and I feel that I'm a reflection of that legacy of those who came before me in the Navy. And my hope is that myself and everyone at my current command can affect those around us to kind of carry on our respective legacies to the next generation of those who desire to serve. Powerful mindset. Uh, yeah. And, you know, while I've, I've definitely, I've done cool things in different jobs, you know, I think it's, it's kind of hard to, to top command and being able to, to know that there were a lot of people that supported me as part of their living legacy. And, you know, I hope that I kind of have that living legacy moving on. And again, like my command having that living legacy as well. I can definitely understand how, how exciting that, that must be for you. I definitely want to hear some of the some of the insights that maybe you've drawn from from that strong mentorship background. And I think we talked about it off the air about how strong the the mentorship connection is and and how much it's been ingrained in into into the the Navy. Absolutely. And looking at the other side of the coin, the lowest point was when I was out of command and, you know, I won't name the the command, but while I was there, I just I wasn't 
employed well for about the first eight months. And I was struggling from boredom. And, you know, I think that's probably true of all uh, services. They kind of have that, why am I even here syndrome? And I feel that a lot of times those individuals feel it as, as I did, because they maybe aren't feeling part of the team or the mission or, or whatever. If they had that feeling of being part of a team, and even if the work is hard, that that gives them the why and why they matter and why they matter to the mission. The stress didn't make those the lowest point, I think, in my career. I think the sure. lowest point was when I just felt like I wasn't fully employed. And I've definitely... I've taken that as a lesson moving on to ensure that people who work for me have that sense of uh, importance and they have that sense of that they're understanding why they're supporting the mission that they're supporting. Well, you're definitely not alone in, in feeling that that lack of a why. And I think it comes from different directions for different people. We had talked a little bit about how part of what got me to do this show was losing my own why and having to to rediscover that why and and really getting lifted by it strong teams i i definitely heard that from other people it's it's as a challenge and an opportunity yeah i think that's a great way to to put it i think it it's a challenge and Mm -hmm. i have taken that challenge that i've had to try to make opportunities for for others as i've moved on in my career as leaders if we take a lesson away we look backwards and uh, try and ensure that others aren't dealing with the same thing. And, and it sounds like that's something you've done is is looking at those under your command and ensuring that that they're employed and that they're part of a team and that they're feeling like they're 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 contributing. Yep, is absolutely. That... So let's talk about one more thing. But it's definitely exciting to me and probably not exciting to uh, the listeners. But the Strait of Magellan. Can yes. you tell us just a little bit about what that is? So it is the strait that connects the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean at the mm-hmm. southern tip of South America. So our aircraft carriers can't fit through the Panama Canal. Uh-huh. So anytime we do transits, they have to go all the way around South America. So it's a part of the, the world that we don't get the opportunity to transit very often as a Navy. And to, to be able to do that, it was, it was pretty cool. In fact, we, uh, I think we went through on the day that Magellan discovered the Straits of the first, and we went huh. through November 1st. So really beautiful. The mountains, the snow there, the weather that goes through there, we sustained winds between 50 and 65 knots through most of it. And wow. when we came out on the Atlantic side. Uh, the seas weren't awful. I think we had about 12 to 14 foot seas, which seems like a lot, but that mm-hmm. for an aircraft carrier, it's, it's, it, it's manageable. It's still a rough ride, but mm-hmm. compared to when I've gone through on a, a smaller destroyer, but yeah, no, it was a really cool experience. And at the time, secretary Mabus of the SECNAP, he actually mm-hmm. was on board our ship as well. So that kind of made it for a unique uh, experience as well. That's pretty cool. I heard the, the Atlantic and the Pacific are they both have a different density of salt and different colors. Did you get a chance to see the the difference? So when we went through on the Pacific side, it was pretty foggy. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. in the morning hours. It was okay. it was pretty early when we started the transit, and then when we exited on the Atlantic side, I believe it was nighttime. No, oh, that's uh, too bad. So yeah, we kind of you know it was just it was 
not very visible on either end. There were a couple points where the right. winds died down and, you know, everyone just, you know, kind of took it in because you, you really don't get that opportunity to see that very often. Yeah. And that's, that's a very unique part of the world. So you've spent time at sea and, you know, being in command is taxing on, on anyone, but how does your service affect your family and, and maybe how has your family affected your service? No, my, my family is, is my rock and they're, they're part of my career as well. So currently married, my wife Janine and I have three kids. So Janine and I both originally met at Penn State and reconnected after when I was in San Diego. We started dating when I only had been in the Navy for about eight months. So so she's been there since the beginning. We were dating on my first deployment. She actually came out and met me in in Sydney. So she's understood all the the highs and lows of Naval service. Mm -hmm. And she is also extremely career oriented as well. She also holds professional degrees in climatology and environmental policy. So she's oh. also a driven professional and that's been challenging to manage because of the Navy lifestyle with moving every two to three years. And as I've gotten more senior, those moves have been closer to more every two years. So mm-hmm. I will say overall, the community has done a really good job in at least listening to me and my family situation and concerns. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it does its best to try to support both. How have you had those conversations? Just honestly, I just talk about Janine and current jobs that she has at the time and where the opportunities, at least for her to find work, are because of her field sets. So the Navy mission always takes priority. And as you get more senior, your options for jobs get narrower and narrower. But mm-hmm. again, the Metoc community does its best to support the families as much as they can. But being so small, sometimes it's just, it's very difficult. And, you know, now Janine and I, we have, we have three children, Tessa, Anthony, and Christian, uh, their ages 11, nine, and six. Mm-hmm. And as they've gotten older, the moves have definitely gotten harder. The amount of times that they've had to sacrifice and like this past move, it was more evident than say move one with kids when they're really young, they, they wake up, they say they're in a different room and it doesn't bother them too much. But when they have to say goodbye to friends, that's more taxing to, to see them go through those transitions. But despite all these challenges, Jadine has still managed to be a successful federal employee. She has risen to the level of GS-14. Our children are excelling in school. And I think, you know, overall as a family unit, we're more resilient because of the Navy. And we appreciate the smaller things in life, like simply being in the company of one another. That's one of those things that in the last few years, there's been a conversation around including your family. And I don't know that necessarily people did that all the time, but really engage your command with that that other side of you, right? The the human side and the fact that your family is affected by by decisions that that are being made for your next steps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I said earlier the the Navy mission was always the the priority. It's just about being honest and having that conversation. You know, we raise that right hand and take that oath, but I feel like if I just don't have those conversations, then I do a little bit of a disservice to to my family and the sacrifices that they're making because it is important. And I've looked for opportunities to spend time with the family where I can get home, I get the the dinner routine, say goodnight mm-hmm. to the kids. And now with all the abilities of us 
having Office 365 and webmails and things like that. If there were mm -hmm. admin tasks that I can just kind of take care of after hours from home, after I've spent time with my family, then, you know, I, I look for those opportunities, but then sometimes mission calls, but I have definitely tried to look for those opportunities. If I can get to daughter's cross country meet or a son's baseball practice and, you know, maybe do that hour of admin later in the evening, sure. then I'm going to do that. Well, and that's, that's one of the things that we've got to remember that, you know, we're humans and that we serve better and we work better and we work better together when that holistic person is being considered and not just show up, do your work. It creates good outcomes. So you had talked about some great people that had given you mentorship and, and leadership in the past and how that culminated in in making your command a zenith for the the mentorship and the leadership that you'd had what are the best pieces of advice that you've received and from whom um so i thought about you know i think about this a lot because there's just a, a lot of great advice that we get over the course of our careers but there was a training session I went to last year within our community and we were presented a, a discussion and part of that was from Simon Sinek and he's done a lot of leadership training and leadership mentorship. And he has a quote that I found to be very powerful. It's uh, leadership is not about being in charge. Leadership is about taking care of those in your charge. And it really struck a chord with me, especially going into command because it's just, it's a very powerful, simplistic and concise view of what I think leaders should do. Yeah. On paper in charge, you know, you can't right. see my air quotes, but you're, <laughs> we, you're, can hear you, we can hear them. You can hear them, but it's, it, it's about the people. You mentioned the human aspect earlier. Uh, it's, it's about the people. And then if you can't have the people in the right mindset to do the mission, then you can't get the mission done. So I, I like the the quote so much. I put it on my, you know, personal uh, command coin. And I, I'd say, you know, that's just something in recent history that kind of really stuck out for me. And it's kind of been a guiding focus of mine being in, uh, being a command now. That's wow. That, that's really powerful. Other people as they, as they try to to climb to, to levels that you've reached. What's your best piece of advice? What nugget of knowledge would you want to pass on? Yeah, I think my best piece of advice, we, we've, and we've talked about it a, a little bit already, is about mm -hmm. mentors. But seeking mentors who have shared or maybe like experiences that you've had or maybe looking to have. You know, if you're someone that has a family, if you're, then, you know, seek a mentor that's had a family. If you have a, a working spouse, seeing if you can seek a mentor that has a, a similar uh, family dynamic, someone who has been a career military person, because I think knowing the challenges that they've experienced, I think they can give you the best view of what's best for you in the next stages of your career, whether it's or outside of the military. I think you said it earlier, we all exit the military at some point in our career. So it's seeking, seeking mentors because that's really what's worked uh, for me and being able to seek advice from people in our small niche community. So that's kind of my best life and career advice that I think I would share. Okay. I'd like to dig into that a little bit because as you've gone higher in your career, there's certain groups we just don't, don't talk to. And that works up and down. 
say, you know, I'm in an O2 and I want to talk to an O4 or an O5 from a, a tactical or a practical standpoint, how do you engage in that conversation if they're not in my direct command or in my direct sort of field of view? What are some recommendations you might give on in starting that conversation and yeah, and I think, you know, that's kind of the hard thing with with seeking mentors and mentorship because it has to be, you know, kind of natural as well. And mm-hmm. if I had to put maybe a, a caveat on that that advice I just gave, you know, someone that you've maybe served with, talking about like O two, trying to maybe talk to like an O four, uh, mm-hmm. if that that O four is maybe their their XO and you know, they can see the the path that their XO has had and they're getting ready to transfer from, from that command. And you know, say, hey, sir, ma'am, you know, uh, as I know I'm leaving here, but you've, you've kind of laid a path that I'm looking to emulate. And I'd like to, you know, maintain a relationship to, to seek advice as I move on in my career. You know, I think that it makes it a little bit more organic and real. That makes that, that relationship more authentic. I mean, you'd, on the civilian side, I guess you would call that networking, but yeah, it's, it's, um, I mean, in the end it, it is networking really, but it's a end. warm introduction yeah. and that's, that's, that's a key part uh, that maybe we should, we should call out by name is, mm-hmm. is getting that warm introduction instead of stopping someone in the mess hall. Exactly. The last point that I always want to touch on, and it's an, an it's an intentionally open-ended question is what do you see for the future as the military evolves? Hmm. Yeah, that's. It's definitely open ended, and that's definitely a tough question to answer because I honestly don't know. I saw the dramatic shifts in the world crises over just a two year period, and mm-hmm. it it demonstrated how dynamic things can be. And whether it's Navy, Army, Air Force, Marine Corps, we have to have the flexibility in our response as a as a defense department. The service member today has to be smarter, more adaptive, more skilled more resilient than ever. And specifically for my profession, you know, in naval oceanography, we have an opportunity to have a unique and decisive role in the future of warfare. You know, with our personnel and how they collect and process and they exploit all this environmental information to assist in in all the different warfare areas to to make decisions faster than the adversary. And that, that's what they do. You know, our teams collectively work in spaces that start, you know, from the, the ocean floor and mapping and, you know, go to the far reaches of space. In a world where, you know, our current defense department is always saying to do more with less, I think, you know, us being that leading authority in our community, naval oceanography important. We have a motto and I like to emphasize it that it really does start with us. We we take that environmental data to be part of that kill chain into delivering lethality to the warfare commander. So I think that's where I see a lot of uh, potential, at least for our community and even the information warfare community, because especially our naval naval information warfare community does a lot mm-hmm. a lot in the cyber world as well. I think that's where there's going to be a lot of change over the course of the next five to ten. Well, and I I think it's an unavoidable part of the battle space now, as as we're starting to see, you know, what some of our near peers and peers and and partners are able to bring to the battle space. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for the for the time you've taken. I geeked out <laughs> learning about what you guys do and and how this affects 
just so much in the battle space. I, I really appreciate you inviting me on and allowing me to share a little bit about my my story, my experiences, and I hope for any of the listeners out there that they found it beneficial. Outstanding. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks for listening. Go find us on social media at the Whoview Pod. If you liked the episode, share it with a friend. If you didn't like it, complain to a friend about how bad it was. Maybe they won't believe you and check us out anyway. We're searching for guests. Please message the show if you or someone you know has a great story about how they planned and executed their military career.